You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this episode of First Look, host Jonathan Capehart sits down with Dan Balls, Donna Edwards, and Hugh Hewitt to discuss the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the current status of the war on terror, and the recent Afghanistan withdrawal. Let's listen. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. It's been 20 years since the United States experienced one of the darkest days in its history. Thousands of lives were lost in the September 11th terrorist attacks in 2001. America was never the same. The world was never the same. Today, 20 years later, we look back on the events of that day and assess where we are now as a country and as a people. We're gonna talk about that tragic day with all of my guests. But first, I wanna to get to some breaking news on the battle against the coronavirus pandemic with Dan Baltz, chief correspondent for the Washington Post. Dan, welcome to First Look. Jonathan, thank you. Good to be with you. So yesterday, President Biden announced that the Labor Department is developing uh, an emergency rule mandating that companies with 100 or more employees ensure their workers are either vaccinated or tested for coronavirus on a weekly basis. How did the, the administration come to this decision that will impact tens of millions of American workers? Jonathan, I think you have to start with the basic premise of how the president came into his administration, which was recognizing that the most important job he had was to deal with the coronavirus pandemic uh, and to, in one way or another, uh, put the country past it or figure out how the country could deal with it and keep the economy open, schools open, and that sort of thing. Um, for a time, he was making a significant amount of progress, and then the country was hit with the Delta variant, which has caused you know, a tremendous spike uh, in the number of cases, hospitalizations have risen, deaths have risen, um, and he hit a wall on vaccinations. And I think what we saw yesterday was a combination of uh, his frustration that he's not been able to move more rapidly to get more and more people vaccinated, um, and also a recognition that he has powers at his disposal that he may be able to use to compel people either to get those vaccinations um, or to be tested and to do it through um, major companies. Jonathan, obviously, this is quite controversial. We saw the, the reaction um, from a lot of people on the right uh, yesterday. There's threats of lawsuits. This will go into the courts. Um, businesses split. Uh, the business roundtable, Joshua Bolton, who was the former White House chief of staff to George W. Bush, said they welcomed this. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce was was neutral, but not explicitly opposed. Smaller business uh, representatives have been uh, opposed to it. So this has a ways to go, but I think it is it is acknowledgement on the part of the president that they needed to change the strategy uh, if they are to get back on top of this against the virus. And I do want to get to um, your recollections of 9-11, but real quickly, uh, you recently wrote about the drop in the president's approval rating um, over his handling of the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan. But how much of yesterday's COVID actions are related to the president's concern that his handling of the pandemic will have a longer lasting effect on his standing? Well, Jonathan, I think that the decline in his approval ratings uh, are affected by a number of things, both the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but also his handling of the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, his numbers on the handling of the pandemic 
were down from the last time we polled. So um, he's being he's being hit in uh, various directions, and that I think is driving down the, the poll numbers. Uh, look, every Democrat is very sensitive to the fact that that their prospects, if they're seeking election in 2022, depend heavily on how the public perceives the, the progress or lack thereof by the by the administration and the performance of the president. We're a long way from people making that ultimate judgment. We're more than a year out from those elections. But I think that the recognition that there are potential problems uh, and that if he doesn't move rapidly to deal with those, uh, that they could they could become more serious. Dan, where were you? on September 11th, 2001, when you heard, when you first heard the news about what was happening in New York and then in Washington? Uh, Jonathan, my wife Nancy and I were downtown uh, at a meeting that we had on some family business. Um, and we had arrived for the meeting and we were told that there had been an incident at the World Trade Center that a plane had flown into it. Uh, we didn't know anything more at that point, and we were we were waiting uh, for the meeting to begin. Uh, and then the word came down that there had been a second plane that hit, um, and we immediately left. Um, my wife uh, drove back home to our house, and I immediately uh, went into the Washington Post newsroom, at the, the old newsroom at 15th and L, um, which was at that point. Um, you know, you've you've been in a newsroom on a on a mm -hmm. big breaking news story. Uh, it was a buzz with activity, confusion, obviously, um, an effort on the part of the editors to begin to organize our coverage for that day, to begin to deploy people wherever wherever they were needed uh, to to chart out a, a budget of stories that we were going to do, uh, and to throw everything that we had into it. But it was it was a moment in which we were operating. Um, in, in, a, in a climate of, of fear and confusion. We didn't know what was happening. There, were, there was an evacuation of the White House going on. Uh, there were all kinds of rumors about other planes and where they might be heading. Um, it was a terrifying day, frankly. You know, Dan, uh, and as you say, you went into the newsroom and you wrote on that, that day about the tasks at hand for President Bush as he led the country forward in the wake of those historic uh, and horrific attacks. What were the biggest challenges he was facing as a new and inexperienced president? Because this happened, what, seven months into his presidency? Jonathan, it not only happened seven months into his presidency, but it happened after a very disputed election. Um, we recall the, the, the long recount in Florida, the Supreme Court decision that, that gave the presidency to President Bush, um, the bitterness that existed within the country at that point. Um, and and his effort to try to, to move past that uh, in the way he was governing. But I think the second is, as you point out, um, completely inexperienced in foreign policy. He had ideas about domestic policy, but his foreign policy experience was very, very minimal. Um, he'd been governor of Texas for two terms, had obviously done some foreign trips. Um, but I think that people when they elected him felt the degree to which he had experience or capability on foreign policy. It was because he was the son of George H.W. Bush, who was highly experienced in foreign policy and, and had, a, had, a, had a record previously with the Gulf War and other things and the, 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 uh, the decline of the Soviet Union and the reunification of Germany. And I think that that, that was what people thought, well, uh, if George W. Bush doesn't have great experience, um, he's got his father and he'll have an experienced team around him which he did. 
Um, but uh, but I think that the problem for him was that, um, particularly as that first day unfolded, uh, it did not give people great confidence about him, and it took him some days to get his footing. Dan, last question to you. You obviously in your position, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Washington Post, um, and you're now chief correspondent. You've written lots about this. Um, given how our involvement in Afghanistan began and the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, at the end of last month, just, uh, you know, our poll shows that 54 percent of the American people believe that the war in Afghanistan was, quote, not worth it. What's your assessment? Well, I think that the public has very mixed views about this. Um, they, they are pleased with, or I'm not sure pleased is the right word, they support the decision by President Biden to end the war. Uh, we have known for some time that people were tired of the war and that as time went on, they did not think it was something that was worth the cost in lives, uh, in the number of people wounded, um, and, and in uh, taxpayer dollars that it was costing the United States. Um, and so I think that on the basic decision, there has been support for what President Biden did. But the way it unfolded, um, the, 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 the haste of the withdrawal, and certainly the deaths of American service personnel have, have caused people to question whether the Biden administration handled the, that decision uh, as, as competently as they had promised to do when he came in as president. And so I think there's a, there's a mixed reaction to it at this point. Um, but clearly, uh, Americans are, don't want the United States to continue, or didn't want them to continue in Afghanistan longer. And I think that the question is, what are the costs now of having made the decision to withdraw fully. And we don't know the answer to that yet. We're waiting to see what, the, what a Taliban government will mean for Afghanistan and perhaps for the United States. Dan Balz, Chief Correspondent for The Washington Post, thank you very much for being here and sharing your thoughts uh, as we contemplate the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. We're gonna keep that conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a few moments. Stay with us. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we will find my colleagues, Donna Edwards and Hugh Hewitt. Donna, Hugh, welcome. Uh, let's talk news of day before we look back at 9-11. Donna, this week, former President Trump reached out to families of, the US, of US service members killed in Afghanistan. And I'm wondering your perspective. Is Trump capitalizing on President Biden's vulnerability here? Well, I think that um, uh, Donald Trump continues to try to pretend that he is the president. Um, you'll recall during the time of his presidency, he was very reluctant actually to be seen um, both at Dover Air Force Base, um, you know, welcoming, bringing back uh, fallen service members. Um, his discussion of the war was all over the place. And so he may be trying to capitalize on this moment, but he's not president anymore. And I think it has limited impact. Um, Hugh, your view on that? Well, the president is in touch with some of the families who were very angry with Joe Biden. Some of the Marines families were 
very upset with the president's uh, discussion with them when he met the dignified transfer of remains ceremony at Dover. And so I believe it's up to the families to talk to whomever they want to talk to. The last time I talked with you two was just before Kabul fell, and I said it was going to be a catastrophe, and it has been a catastrophe. And everyone who lost their lives, especially the American servicemen, the 11 Marines, the sailor and the soldier, if they want to talk to Donald Trump, I think that's their right. Uh, Hugh, I'm going to stick with you. The first commercial flight to take off from Afghanistan since the end of the evacuations on August 31st landed safely in Qatar yesterday. More than 100 foreign nationals, including Americans on board. Does that flight out of Kabul vindicate the Biden, uh, President Biden's and Secretary of State Antony Blinken's approach in all this? Not at all. I'm glad they're out. I'm glad 30 Americans are out. We don't even know the number of passport holders. This morning on my radio show, I talked with Susanna George, the Washington Post Kabul bureau chief, and she is bravely reporting from the Post headquarters in Kabul still. She's also the Pakistan bureau chief. Susanna tells me there just is not any way of knowing how many Americans, passport holders, whether they are legal permanent residents, green card holders or citizens, or the parents of citizens, whatever. If they have a passport, there's no way to know how many they are. But she has spoken with many of them personally who are quite fearful to come out of the street, who feel let down by the Department of State and by the Biden administration. She is herself quite bravely venturing out. But until and unless we know that there are no Americans hostage in Afghanistan, this will remain the bleakest hour of many bleak hours of a young Biden administration. It's still a crisis. It will remain a crisis long after the last American gets out. But it's right now, I believe, America held hostage 2.0. I was almost there with you, Hugh, until that that last point, Donna. Um, you know, leave, leave aside you know some of the way how Hugh is characterizing this. Um, but does Hugh have a point? Does that flight come out of Kabul yesterday? Is it necessarily a vindication for the administration's approach here? To your mind. Love your thoughts. Well, I think what the president and what the administration has said is that they are committed still, even after the withdrawal of U.S. troops, to bring every American, every passport holder who wants to leave Afghanistan uh, to bring them uh, bring them home. And that con that commitment has continued whether or not the U.S. still has a military presence on the ground. That was the commitment made to the American people. And keep in mind, uh, over 5,000 Americans have actually been evacuated from Afghanistan, and estimates are that there may be 100 or, or um, slightly more uh, um, Americans still in Afghanistan and uh, green card holders. And I take the administration at its word and Secretary Blinken that they will continue, as difficult as it is, to work with uh, the Taliban to maintain their commitment to bring people out who want to leave Afghanistan. I don't think that that is a black mark on the administration. I think it is um, the acceptance that they continue to do their work, whether or not that there, there are troops on the ground. So uh, as, I'm, as we all are aware, um, tomorrow marks the 20th uh, anniversary of the September 11th attacks in 2001 in Hue. You were broadcasting live on that day when the attacks took place, and you stayed on the air throughout the day. 
Uh, I want to play a clip from your radio show reacting to the news in real time shortly after the second plane hit the second World Trade Center tower. Let's all, uh, all have a listen. It will be very difficult to keep talking for three hours because it is so mind-boggling what has happened here. Uh, obviously, it is going to be the worst act of terrorism ever. We have no idea who is responsible for it, although this would require a level of... Uh, this, the, I'm watching the replay of the second jet crashing intentionally into the World Trade Center. And it will, it will be another day that will live in infamy. Hugh, I mean, we could hear, um, hear your voice, obviously, in that clip. <clears throat> but what was going through your mind at that moment? To be a broadcaster, uh, occasionally I pause because it was pretty emotional. But the job of a broadcaster with live news, and I was on six to nine West Coast, so it's drive time on the West Coast, is to bring people as unemotional a set of facts as possible. Uh, I had the number estimate wrong. I thought 50,000 people were dead, given how many people would be in the World Trade Center. But I didn't report um, all of the various false narratives that went around about the State Department blowing up. I did report the Pentagon attack. It was challenging throughout that day. I then went up and did PBS that night from Los Angeles because I was the nightly host of a PBS show in LA. And I just am amazed still at the television anchors who did it for 14, 16, 18 hours from New York. I was in Southern California. It was 3,000 miles away. The men and women who did journalism credit that day, uh, like everyone who rushed to the towers and those who lost their lives really did their job. I, I'm amazed by it because it's very difficult to do live journalism when you see something like that. Yeah, yeah. in my, my new, new job on MSNBC, I had to you know, do breaking news live as Kabul was, was falling. And as a journalist, you're imparting information, but when you're in that chair, you also have to impart the historic nature of what right. is happening so that the viewers understand that this just isn't television that you're watching, it is history in real time. Donna, so Hugh was on the West Coast, 3,000 miles away, but you're from Maryland. You were very close. Where, where were you when you first heard the news of the attacks? Well, I was watching on live television from my office uh, at Connecticut and L Street. And, um, you know, it was startling, as Hugh mentioned, the heroic work really of minute-to-minute -minute coverage of such a, a tragedy. And I recall seeing very distinctly that second plane um, going into the, into the tower and knowing at that moment that this was no accident. Um, it was in that, you know, really in that moment. And I remember the day here in Washington, you know, when you're from the Washington region, you get used to seeing certain things, the Pentagon, the Capitol, the White House, the monument. And I remember that day because it was one of the clearest, crispest Septembers ever. There was not a single cloud in the sky. And I remember the only thing that you could see was the plume of smoke coming from the Pentagon. I will never be rid of that uh, of that memory. And my son, of course, was, you know, a, a child in school on Capitol Hill, 
uh, at a time mm. when there was being broadcast that a plane was headed uh, for the Capitol. And so it was just emotionally, personally, you know, just a very difficult uh, day, but knowing at that moment that our lives would be changed forever. You know, I was nodding vigorously, Donna, when you were talking about the, that day being just the sky being crisp and clear and not a cloud in the sky. I was in New York and it was primary day in New York and I went to go vote. I was working on Michael Bloomberg's first campaign for mayor and I went to go vote and remember looking up at the sky and saying, what a beautiful day, probably the most spectacularly beautiful day I had seen in all my years in New York. And then tragedy uh, unfolded uh, not even 90 minutes later. Um, this is both, I have this for Hugh, but I'm gonna, in the time that we have left, give it to both of you. But to start with you, Hugh, uh, as we all know, 9-11 changed everything about America, our politics, our foreign policy, uh, even our culture. Uh, what are your thoughts about how America has changed in the 20 years since the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Originally, Jonathan and Donna, I thought it was a tactical victory by the terrorists and the fanatical Islamists, but a strategic defeat because America came together and W gave the we meet in the middle hour of our grief speech at the National Cathedral and the axis of evil speech at the Capitol in January. I thought the United States would, would weather the storm well. 20 years later, it turns out it was a strategic defeat for the United States. We're withdrawing, defeated from Afghanistan. The Taliban are not only not defeated, they're stronger than ever with the equipment that we've left behind. China is rising and the United States is as deeply divided as ever it has been in my adult years. Of course, the civil rights movement occurred when I was a child and the Vietnam War was going on when I was in junior high. But uh, as an adult, this is the most divided we've ever been. I think a lot of it goes back to the trauma of 9-11 and the politics that changed then. George W. Bush won the by-election in 2002. 20 years later in 2022, I think Joe Biden's going to get crushed because of Kabul, but in the by-elections. But I do know this, America is not anywhere near like it was on September 12th, which was united. Donna, your thoughts. You know, I, as I listen to um, to Hugh, I don't know that I'm ready to make a conclusion yet about where we are 20 years um, later from 9-11 uh, to where we'll be in 2022. What I do know is that I often hear people describe the war in Afghanistan as though it was one war. And I really don't think about that at all. I think that the war that we won was getting rid of um, or decimating al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. That was the original war. That, that engagement changed so substantially over the 20 years that that's why I think it's hard for Americans to get a grip on the question of whether it's a success, was a success or a failure. Um, I don't think that America is at its lowest moment, um, and maybe that's just the military brat in me. Uh, I do believe that we have some challenges. And when I think about the days after 9-11, 9-12, as, as Hugh describes it, our lives did change. Our lives changed um, the way we traveled, uh, the way in Washington, D.C., the way we drive around the city with more barriers and barricades up um, since 9-11. 
Um, all of our lives have changed, but I also think that this now 20-year end of an engagement in Afghanistan also means that we have to rethink the way that we engage with the rest of the world. That is the challenge that Joe Biden has, and it's the challenge that we have as Americans. In the time that we have left, which is about about two minutes, real quickly, I was struck by something um, Hugh highlighted and that's been highlighted a lot in, in the coverage, and that is how America came together in the hours and days and months after the, the September 11th attacks, and whether that would even be possible if a similar um, outlandish attack happened in the United States now in 2021. Do you think America could come together 9-11 style if we were hit again today? Uh, Hugh first, then Donna. Yeah, I think so. I remember the people standing on the corners driving back from LA that night uh, with candles lit all around the United States in the aftermath of catastrophe, whether it's been Katrina or more recently hurricanes, or even in the middle of COVID, I see Americans helping Americans. I see it a lot more than outside of the urban centers, but I do believe uh, the country still has a great common humanity and great love of each other, though. It's a, it's a bell curve, right? The left uh, edge and the right edge never shut up and they never say nice things to each other, but the vast 90% in the middle, we all get along and in the middle of a crisis, I think we would rally together. Last word to you, Donna. Wow, um, you know, I think that we have the potential always to come together, especially in moments of great uh, crises. And I think one of the you know, most difficult things is for us to separate ourselves from our politics and embrace ourselves as Americans. Um, but we do have that, that potential. And I, I guess I'm not as much of a cynic about where our politics are because I've always thought that we've operated in peaks and valleys. And this may be a valley, but there's always another, another peak. And I think that's, you know, that's sort of the beauty of the American spirit. And I see that it will come through in moments where we need to be, uh, to be challenged. And of course, we look at January 6th and wonder if that was not a moment that actually could unite Americans, what would be. But there's the potential. I'm a believer. And, and I think to Hugh's point and your point, uh, we saw Americans coming together and supporting each other in the aftermath of the murder of, of George Floyd, uh, which is a prime example of in the middle of a pandemic coming out of their homes to protest a uh, to protest an injustice. Donna and in Hugh, Donna Edwards, Hugh Hewitt, we got to go. We are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on First Look. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Donna. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Uh, head to WashingtonPostLive.com to find more information about our upcoming interviews and events. I'm Jonathan Capehart. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live's First Look. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.